I'm going to ask you now if you would turn your attention to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. The passage this morning is from verses 9 through 14. It can be found either in the digital bulletin or you could follow along in your own Bibles. Let me ask you if you're able, if you would stand, and I will read aloud. This is the Word of God. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, beginning in the ninth verse. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that you would work through the reading of your word, the preaching and the proclamation of your word here in the gospel of Luke, that you would work by your spirit in the hearts of your people to show us our need of you, to make us wholly dependent upon you, and to show us how we ought to live in light of the gospel of the salvation given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So make us wholly able and willing to live as becomes the followers of Christ. By the power of your Spirit, we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I want to begin this morning by sharing a quote from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Packer says this, As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, from the Amazon to Trafalgar Square, to leave him there with no understanding of English or of England, to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and you can ruin your soul. To this quote, I think very much applies to the passage this morning, because the passage this morning in as much as it is about knowing yourself is equally and maybe more importantly a passage about knowing God, about knowing God. You see, the subject of the parable that Jesus shares this morning is concerning the subject of pride. And as much as pride is about the heart of man, 
There is only hope for the natural man who is born with pride in his heart if the Holy Spirit of God forcefully intrudes into the heart of man, giving him the gift of faith, whereby comes the humility of the heart, and in only we find life. You see, the parable this morning, we must know God, for He is the one who breaks the pride of the heart and gives us humility. It's interesting this morning as we look at this parable that we see the example first and foremost in the prayer of these two men, and it is more than an irony to consider that our prayer tells us much about our own heart. For if you listen to the prayer of a man or a woman, you will hear what is internally going on in the heart of that man or woman. For from our hearts comes the reality or the truth of what is happening in the words of our prayer. And so this morning, we look at this parable concerning the pride of the heart. The pride of the heart. And the first thing I want to begin with is the problem of pride. Now, you likely noticed that the word pride never comes up in this passage. It's not mentioned. As a matter of fact, the word pride never comes up in the Gospel of Luke. It's very interesting, isn't it? The word pride is only mentioned four times in the entire New Testament. And yet, as seldom as the word is mentioned, we know we often see the idea of pride being addressed. It's all over the pages of the New Testament Scriptures. And there's no doubt this morning that the parable that Jesus shares is dealing with the heart issue of pride. And so as we begin by looking at the problem of pride, let us first then look at what is the nature of pride. What does pride look like? What does pride look like? I think you'll notice it from this passage in a number of different ways. It begins from the very beginning. And it says that he told them a parable to the effect that they, uh, sorry, that's not the passage we're reading this morning. It says in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And if there's a description of what it looks like to have pride in your heart, this then is a, a very good description. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The Greek word that's used, that is translated here, trusted, is the Greek word patho, patho, and it literally means to convince or to persuade, to convince or to persuade. They had convinced themselves of their own righteousness. Now, this was an important word in ancient Greek culture. For you know that ancient Greek culture highly valued rhetoric and debate. And if you had the gift of persuasion or the gift of being able to convince, that was a highly valued gift in Greek culture. And so a very prominent idea in this culture. And Jesus says of the people that he spoke to that they were people who had convinced themselves, they had persuaded themselves of their own righteousness. And the, the scene that Jesus describes, the people that he spoke to, it's almost an absurd scene. It's slightly warped because the situation that he describes is almost as if these people are having a conversation with themselves. They had convinced themselves. And the conversation that Jesus uh, kind of portrays here, it probably went like this. Hey, self, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, self. 
I think I've got my life in order. I do the things I ought to do. I don't do the things I, I shouldn't do. I think that I'm a pretty good guy. Well, yes, you are, self. You appear to be righteous. Way to go. Okay? They had convinced themselves as if they had laid down an argument. They had had a conversation with themselves. And now they were persuaded by their own internal arguments that they indeed were righteous. Okay? This is the nature of. This is the nature of the pride of the heart. It's a description that Jesus gives of the people that he began speaking this parable to. If if you're wondering or looking for a definition of pride, then I'll give you my own personal definition. Pride is the internal or personal conviction of the heart in an unwarranted way that I am worthy, righteous, or good, okay? Unwarranted because there's no evidence outside of my heart, and yet that's the nature of pride. It's the internal conviction of my own righteousness without external evidence, okay? Without any reason or logic. That's these people. They had persuaded themselves of their own righteousness. And we see it also then, as Jesus begins to share the parable, we see it in the posture of the Pharisee. Look at the description of the Pharisee who goes into the temple. It says, as the two men went into the temple to pray, one was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. And we get the idea that the Pharisee kind of strolls into the temple, right into the most holy place, approaching the presence of God with no concern of who he was and of who God was, and he began to pray with bold confidence in his own accomplishments. In the passage in the ESV, it says there, the Pharisee standing by himself. I'm not sure that's the best translation of that Greek in in this part of the verse because the Greek actually says the Pharisee entered and he prayed to himself. Okay? He prayed to himself, and we get the idea that he's almost praying and concerning himself or praying about himself. As a matter of fact, that's what the New American Standard Version says. The New American Standard, if you have a, a copy of that version of the Scriptures, it translates it there, and it says that the, the Pharisee entered the temple and he prayed concerning himself. And it gives us the picture of the Pharisee who enters the temple with confidence in his own accomplishments, and he begins this prayer, which is just all about me, right? It revolves around him. It is a celebration of his own accomplishments. It is, as Jesus described it, the persuasion of his own heart that he was, without evidence or reason, righteous in his own heart, okay? This is what pride looks like, the pride of the heart. Next question to ask then about this prideful heart is, what does the prideful heart think of its own self, and then what does it think of others, okay? What is the posture of the prideful heart towards others? Well, we also see that in this passage as the Pharisee begins to pray. Look at his prayer. It says in verse 4, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What an interesting way to begin a prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, you have to realize, okay, this prayer is made all the more awkward if we remind ourselves that people during this day, they prayed out loud, 
It's kind of a new development in Christianity, right? And I mean new in the last what, few hundred years, a thousand years, I don't know, to pray quietly, to pray in our hearts. But it was common practice during the entire time of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, to pray out loud. That's what you did. You prayed out loud. And so if we understand the scene, both the tax collector and the Pharisee enter into the temple together. They are within earshot of one another. And the Pharisee begins to pray out loud, and the tax collector can hear him as he prays, and he prays this prayer. Isn't it an awkward prayer? Isn't it interesting that he prays this knowing full well the tax collector can hear him? And, and to that end, I believe, the more I've read this passage, the, the more I believe that the Pharisee as he prays is not so much concerned with comparing himself to the rest of the world, I firmly believe that the things that he is saying are a, 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 a comparison simply between him and the tax collector. That his whole prayer is about his own accomplishments and righteousness as it compares to this tax collector. Look at, the, again, the prayer he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners as a, a description of a tax collector. Unjust description of a tax collector. Adulterers. I think Pharisees often use the word adulterer to, to be those who were spiritual adulterers, those who had traded themselves. They had aligned themselves with a foreign uh, power, a foreign uh, a nation, a foreign god. And so in this sense, tax collectors were often described as adulterers, okay? Adulterers. Even like this tax collector. I believe that as the Pharisee is praying, he has a, a, a myopic focus in his prayer before God. For as he is internally convinced of his own righteousness, he basks in the comparison between the pride of his own heart and the condition that he sees this poor tax collector in. And see, isn't that something we often know about the pride of the heart? The pride of the heart loves to compare and the prideful heart that is internally finding a justification for its own righteousness is often looking for evidence outside to, uh, uh, to confirm or to justify its own conclusion. So if I believe in my heart that I'm right or I'm good or I'm worthy, I am always looking for evidence outside myself to prove my own conclusion, right? And there before the Pharisee in the temple stands the, the best evidence, <laughs> There's a tax collector, the worst of the worst, the most vilest offender. Of course, then, I'm righteous. Of course, I'm worthy. Look at this poor, pitiful man. It is why when Jesus began this parable, he said of those around him that they treated others with contempt. That word contempt means to separate out, to see as not equal, to look down upon, okay? They treated others with contempt. Those that Jesus spoke to saw themselves as worthy and the others around them as being unworthy. This is the nature of the pride of the heart. And it manifests itself in the prayer of the Pharisee. So one other question then to ask about this pridefulness before we look at the humility demonstrated by the tax collector. But one question that doesn't naturally come out of the passage, but I think it's worth talking about. Where does pride of the heart come from? Where is the pridefulness that's described in this parable by Jesus? Where does it originate from? Well, I, I think we have to agree that we can find it all the way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. 
For if you were to describe the fall of Adam and Eve and you were to articulate the things that are going on in the hearts of the first man and the first woman, you would have to agree that pride is one of the very first things happening in the hearts of Adam and Eve. Why? Because another way of describing the events of Genesis chapter 3 are to say that Adam and Eve had an internal, a personal conviction that was unwarranted of their own righteousness or worthiness or value. That as a matter of fact, they were presented other evidence, the revelation of God, the word of God, telling them one thing, but they decided instead to follow the convictions of their own hearts, of their own rightness and worthiness. In an unwarranted way, they had no reason to, and yet they concluded that in their hearts. The pridefulness of the heart. And then what happens when Adam and Eve fall? Well, they begin to have contempt for one another, don't they? This is the result of the fall, almost immediately, right? They begin to point fingers. And why are they pointing fingers? Because if they can just find someone else who is worse off than themselves, who is more culpable or more guilty, they can, in their hearts, begin to justify themselves before the living God. They can satisfy in an internal idea that is unwarranted in reality by making a comparison to those who are around. And so Adam points to Eve, and Eve points to the serpent, and they're looking for someone around them that they can look at with contempt to justify themselves. It's pride of the heart. It is demonstrated by the prayer of the Pharisee in this passage, this pridefulness that we see. So then the second question becomes, what is the nature of humility? What is the nature of humility? If humility is the opposite of pride, what is the nature of humility? What does it look like? How does it see others? How does it see oneself? As we look at the passage, we can begin to note, first of all, what humility looks like. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What does humility look like? Well, first of all, beginning with the, the physical posture of the tax collector. And I'll remind you, Jesus often uses Pharisees and tax collectors, right? We, we read so many parables with Pharisees and tax collectors. And we have to remember that the tax collector is the worst possible person in this society, okay? And I know we struggle with that. I said, tax collector, really? I can think of like a dozen other people worse off, okay? The tax collector is the worst They're the traitors. They're the ones who had rejected their Jewish brothers and sisters. They had sold themselves to Israel. As a matter of fact, the the literal translation of a tax collector in the New Testament is the phrase a tax farmer, okay? They were harvesting. They were harvesting money from among their own people, right? Tax farmer. And they paid themselves through the extra that they harvested from the people, okay? And so the tax collector, the most vilest offender in this society. What we notice about the tax collector as he enters into the temple is that he enters into it in a totally different way than the way that the Pharisee enters into the temple. You see the physical description. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. The beautiful thing about parables is that Jesus can begin to tell a story And he can use the physical posture and the events that are happening to paint a spiritual picture. 
And the physical description of the tax collector is indicative of the spiritual condition at this moment of the tax collector. He stood a far way off. And this is not simply him being uh, timid or uh, trepid, uh, uh, having a, a bashfulness about entering, entering the temple. It is a physical description of what is happening in the heart of the tax collector as he prepares to enter the temple and he realizes that there's this great distance between him and God. You see, that's one of the differences between pridefulness and humility. Pridefulness sees a distance between me and others. Humility sees a distance between me and God, right? That's what's happening in the heart of the tax collector at this moment. I like to envision him going into the temple and as he enters through the doorway, not even really being willing to go through the doorway and kind of sitting by the doorpost and finding the corner of the room, trying to be as far off from the temple as he can be. Why? Because what's happening in the heart of the tax collector is he realizes that, that God is fire and I am water, that God is heat and I'm ice cold, that, that God is the very opposite of everything that I am, for I am a sinner and God is holy and righteous, and these two things do not belong together that I ought not be in the presence of God, for as holy as He is, I am equally as unholy. And so the tax collector stood far off. And he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And in that we see his shame and his guilt and the conviction of his own unworthiness and his sin. And he realizes that he is unworthy of approaching the throne of God. See, that's the nature of humility. That is the evidence that humility is being produced in his heart. He realizes his own unworthiness. If pride is the internal conviction in an unwarranted way of my own own worthiness and value, then humility is the exact opposite. It is the clarity of the heart that knows that it is unworthy, that it is unrighteous, and it looks to another for its own righteousness and value. If that is the way that humility manifests itself in the heart, then how does humility look at itself and how does it treat others? We'll look at the prayer again that the tax collector offers. It says, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's so much, even in that one sentence, in the way that the tax collector approaches the throne of God. It says he beat his breast. The word means to injure or to harm. It means to mean ill, to attack. It's an interesting description here. It is, a, again, a physical manifestation of the turmoil that is happening in the man's heart. It is, uh, you could equate it with the other physical manifestations of the convictions of guilt that we see in Scripture. Those who would fall in the dirt, who would collapse, who would crumble, whose legs would give out, who would cry out to God. This is the manifestation of that very thing in the tax collector's life realizing his unworthiness, and then he cries before God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I find it interesting. It doesn't even say that he prayed. It says he cried and he said as a uh, comparison to the thing that the Pharisee was doing, as a demonstration of his own need and desperation. 
he cried out to God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. You'll notice how simple is his prayer and how often simple are the prayers of the saints in comparison to the pomp and the frill of the prideful heart that prays to God of its own accomplishments. Again, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, he sees himself as desperately needy. He sees himself clearly as a sinner before the throne of God, needing the mercy of God. And so he cries out before him, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The word mercy is the word that means to save. It means to reconcile a debt, to make whole. It is the recognition of the tax collector as he enters the temple that there is a distance between him and God that needs to be reconciled, that needs to be bridged, that needs to be undone, that needs to be pardoned. It's the recognition as he enters the temple, as the Westminster Confession says, that the distance between God and man is so great that although reasonable creatures owe obedience to him, they would never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. And that leads us into our last part. The last point. You see, where does humility come from? If pride is born in the garden, if it originates there, if it continues and perpetuates in the heart of men and women, if it is something that we come to upon naturally, then where does humility come from? Where does godly humility come from? You see, just as much as pride is part of the natural heart, humility is only a gift of God. Humility, as you see described here in the heart of the tax collector, is only something that can be worked by the Spirit of God in the heart of man. It has not come upon naturally. It is a gift of God. We're reminded this often over and over again in the New Testament. For in comparison to the pride of the heart, it says in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. In comparison to that, the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians that they should walk with humility and kindness, which is the maintaining of the unity of the Spirit. And to the Philippians, that if there is any participation in the Spirit, that they would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility would count others more significant than themselves. So the message of the New Testament Scripture over and over again is that, that humility is the gift of the working of the Spirit, that if we come by faith as a gift of the Spirit, then the byproduct of that faith is the humility of the heart. That the clarity of the heart to recognize its own unworthiness and its own unrighteousness is a gift of God. And if we recognize that, then I think we make sense then of the last two verses of this passage. For Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted you see, Jesus was not concerned with an outward facade. He wasn't saying, listen, if you act humble, you'll be exalted. If you'll just follow the script and play the part. 
if you just speak the lines, and it's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to be prideful, but to act humble. If you will just do this, then you will surely be exalted. It's not what Christ was saying. Rather, he was reflecting upon the condition of the heart. That the tax collector went down from the temple justified, not because he was humble, but because of the humility, which was the evidence of the work of the Spirit in his heart. For his confession, God be merciful to me, I am a sinner, is the confession that only comes from the heart that is being worked upon by the Spirit. It is the evidence of the work of the Spirit in the heart of man. And so this then conclusion of Jesus that those who are humbled will be exalted and those who are exalted will be humbled is the conclusion that those who are in Christ, who by the work of the Spirit in their lives are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, are having humility worked out in their hearts, not perfectly, but it being manifested by this confession, God be merciful to me for I am a sinner, that those who are then being humbled by the work of the Spirit will one day be exalted. That as they're being lowered by the Spirit of God, they will be lifted up. That those who are lifted up in this day, in this age, will one day be lowered and humbled. I think it's a good reminder for us as we often look around us at the world, at those who are exalted with jealous eyes, desiring to have what they have or to be as they are. A reminder of Christ Jesus that those who are humbled will one day be exalted. Here's the final thing I want to leave you with. We can't forget that the demonstration here of both the Pharisee and the tax collector is a demonstration that is brought out in their prayer. And so we ought to ask the question, how should humility shape our prayer? If our hearts are being humbled by grace, how should that shape the way we pray? Well, just a, a, a number of short observations from this passage First of all, if our hearts are being humbled, our prayers ought not be about our own accomplishments or the people around us. And I think that goes without saying, and yet I should say it. That as we pray, we don't pray of our own accomplishments, our own laurels. We don't thank God for how good we are or all that we've accomplished. We don't look around us and pray with more confidence because we believe we're better than those around us or because we can find another person to point to and say, well, look at that person. I am better off or I am more righteous or I am more worthy. I think we can also learn from the prayer of the tax collector in that our prayers need not be complicated. They need not be complicated for the prayer that the tax collector offers is very simple. Our prayers, like the prayer of the tax collector, ought to be needy. They ought to be desperate. They ought to find no hope in our own accomplishments, but they ought to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith for the salvation that we desperately need. And then I believe as we realize the salvation that has been given to us, it ought also to produce in our hearts a great measure of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of joy. For if we realize what the tax collector is praying and confessing this morning, then we realize how great is the price that has been paid, the redemption that has been purchased, the salvation that has been given. And that ought to produce in our hearts a thanksgiving, which manifests in the way we pray, in the way we pray, the way we come before the throne of God. So that's my encouragement to you this morning. It's very simple. 
we're asking you the next few weeks to be praying about this capital campaign, but we're always encouraging one another to be praying. And so my encouragement to you is very simple. As you pray, pray in humility with a humble heart that confesses your need, that recognizes your own inability, that rests upon the mercy of God for the salvation that is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. God have mercy on us, for we're sinners saved by grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we confess with the tax collector that we are unworthy and unrighteous. And yet, Lord, we know that it is easy for us to very quickly begin to think and act like a Pharisee. It is easy for us, Lord God, to find our own justification and worthiness and goodness in all that we are doing and accomplishing. So, dear Father, we ask, would you humble our hearts? Would you make us, Lord, not to look at others and to think how good we are in comparison to them. But would you make us to look around and to see lost sinners saved by grace. To see people all around us desperately needing mercy. Would you help us to see not a distance between us and others, but a distance between all of us and you, our Lord and our God. And then would we, as we rest in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, would you make us as confident and as bold as this Pharisee, not because of the things that we've accomplished, but because of what you have accomplished on our behalf. And may we boldly come before your presence, our Lord and our God, not resting upon our merits and our laurels, but resting upon what has been accomplished on our behalf through your Son, Christ Jesus. And as we rest in that, and as we pray to you, God has mercy on us. May you hear us as we pray. And may you turn your face to us. And may you move on our behalf. May your hand rest upon us, your people. May you provide for us in our need. May you have mercy on us through your Son, Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.